Hello, and welcome to It Happened at Harvard, a podcast produced by the Harvard Crimson and featuring interviews with members of the Harvard community. I'm Sam Dinello. And I'm Will Skinner. And let's get right to it. Will, I'm going to put you on the hot seat. Who did we have on the show this week? <laughs> uh, this week, Sam, we had uh, Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy. Professor Kennedy grew up in uh, the Jim Crow era South, and his family uh, with his two siblings fled to Washington, D.C. He took a very visceral childhood experience and is now one of the leading theorists of race and law in the country. A alum of Princeton University. And then he went to Yale Law School. And like one of our previous guests, he uh, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So I'm starting to see a bit of a trend here, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. uh, We're reeling them in a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Professor Kennedy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. You know, you talk about your importance of your family upbringing. And today, a lot of the major issues that you deal with relate to race in America. Mm -hmm. And so how do you feel that your upbringing influenced your current beliefs about your role as an African-American man uh, in America and the role that race plays in our society? Hugely important because um, race was a big topic of conversation. It was a big, it was a big presence in our lives. I mean, I was always close to South Carolina. We would go to South Carolina on big on vacations or holidays. I would spend summers in South Carolina. And, you know, prior to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, just driving to South Carolina was an adventure because we would have to pack up uh, enough provisions to essentially feed ourselves and have enough to drink for ourselves because you could never, you never knew how you were going to be received. You never knew if you were going to go to a fill-in station that had a sign saying, you know, colored round back, that sort of thing. So race was a big thing. And my my parents talked about racial politics a lot. Uh, They diverged in their thinking a lot. My father was um, from Louisiana. My mother was from South Carolina. My father uh, had a very distinctive view. He had a very jaundiced view of American democracy. He never forgave the United States for the way in which the United States treated people of color. He was harshly critical of the uh, American political system. He basically thought that uh, black people would probably never be treated with equal respect in the United States. The best he thought that black people could do was to um, arm themselves to survive in a society that was destined to be hostile. So that was my father. My mother, on the other hand, was very different. My mother was a person who, you know, and she was from the Deep South, too. She grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, very big on education. Uh, She was very attentive to diplomacy. And I think she thought that if you worked hard enough, if you were very, if you if you were careful, worked hard, you could uh, advance in America. And she had a more, let us say, conventional approach to uh, racial politics in America. 
Um, I guess one place you've gone on record a little bit discussing your upbringing with regards to race in America was a Harper's article you wrote about the politics of respectability mm-hmm. um, and discussing the ways in which your parents told you essentially you had to act as an ambassador for your race. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested both how that manifested that itself in your experience um, and then also the article itself. You know, you received some backlash for it. What was that experience like? Sure. Well, yeah, my parents definitely believed in what people now refer to as the politics of respectability. Like I said, they were they were very different in their their approaches, but both on this they were together. They had a common view, and part of the common view was simply to to survive. I mean, you know, their their basic view was, you know, how how do you survive in a society? That has that that is still suffused with racism, and their view was, you know, you're black, and they told me this by the way. There was no there was no indirection. They were very straightforward. Uh, you're a black boy or black young man in America. You're going to have to be much more careful than your white peers. If something happens, if you are at a party. And people are drinking or people are doing drugs and the police come and, you know, and it's a bad scene and people are being sent to, you know, the lockup. The white kids might catch a break. You are not going to catch a break. And that's what they told me. And I took that to heart. So, you know, I I didn't go to such parties. I mean, that's the way I dealt with it. You know, if if I could, if there was a a danger of that sort of thing, I stayed way clear of that danger, and that was the influence of my parents. As for being an ambassador for blackness, that's absolutely right. Uh, I got that message not only from my parents; I certainly got that message from the great Thurgood Marshall, <laughs> and it, it manifested itself in lots of different ways. So, for instance, never be late. Never be late. Always be ahead of time. You don't want you you do not want white people to be talking about ha ha ha. Uh, yeah, you know how they are. Colored people's time. Nope. You be there ahead of time. If I wrote something, no errors. Every T crossed. Every I dotted. You're going to have to be better than. Because you're going to be under a microscope. When people look at you, they're going to have all sorts of stereotypes in the back of their minds. In order to overcome that, you are going to have to be better. And that's the way I came up. And uh, I took that to heart, as did my as did my brother, as did my younger sister. You know, you have. We were talking earlier. You have three children, mm-hmm. um, and including two sons. Uh, so. What do you tell them? Is it much of the same? I tell them I give them the talk that my parents gave me. Just exactly the same, to tell you the truth. Now, there's been a lot of there's been change in American life. There's been change. You talked about this article, the politics of respectability. I there has been remarkable change in American life over the past fifty to seventy years. Um, Still, it is still the case, though, that uh, we live in a society that is marked by racism. And I would tell any young person, any young black person, you've got to prepare yourself for that. 
You've got to be on your toes. You cannot be complacent. You have to be prepared for people being biased against you. And that means different things in different situations. It, if, if you're pulled over and you're dry, ride, riding in a car and the, you know, and the police officer pulls you over, um, you have to be prepared to deal with a racially biased police officer. I'm not saying that the police officer is racially biased. Um, I'm simply saying you have to be prepared to deal with a police officer who may be racially biased because we know we ought to know that there are, uh, you know, an appreciable number of police officers who are racially biased against black people. So be prepared for that. What does that mean? That means um, be polite. Don't give back talk. If you are going to lodge a complaint, if they treat you wrong, just bite your tongue, go along. Uh, and then afterwards... We can, you know, if, if, if you have been treated in a wrongful way, we can take that up. But, you know, don't be at 11 o'clock at night. Don't be given the, you know, police officer, you know, lip. And part of that is, you know, uh, self-protection. And it seems to me that's perfectly reasonable in our circumstances. It's too bad that it is. I'm not happy about that. You know, I mean, what, it's, it would be a much better thing if people viewed police officers as, you know, the guardians of law and order who are going to treat law-abiding citizens correctly. That, that, that would be much better. Unfortunately, that's not the case today. Another topic I'm interested in is your academic journey. Mm -hmm. You know, you were undergrad at Princeton, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, Yale Law School, and now a Harvard Law Professor, which is a pretty incredible resume. Um, surely such success required some sacrifices on your part as you were a student. So my, my question is, what drove you during all those years? I have been very lucky. Luck is a very big presence in life and... I have been deeply fortunate. So one way in which I've been deeply fortunate is every place, every school I went to, I had a couple of teachers that made a huge difference. The teacher in my life who made the biggest impression and made the biggest difference was a high school teacher. I went to St. Albans School for Boys in Washington, D.C., and I had a high school teacher by the name of John F. McCune. He was a history teacher. And John F. McCune introduced me to some of the historians who've had the biggest impact on my life. I mean, Richard Hofstadter. I remember in John F. McCune's class, we read The American Political Tradition. Well, my senior thesis at Princeton was a biography of Richard Hofstadter. And I have read The American Political Tradition many times since graduating from college. I own many copies of it. <laughs> Um, so, you know, John F. McCune in high school. When I, went to, when I went to Princeton, my senior thesis advisor was a man by the name of James McPherson. James McPherson's probably best known for his volume on the Civil War. Great historian of the Civil War. Big impact on me. A wonderful teacher. There were others. Uh, Sanford Levinson. Sanford Levinson gave me my lowest grade at Princeton. Uh, what had, was it? 
he gave me, I think he gave me a B minus in, of, of all things, constitutional interpretation. <laughs> but uh, wonderful teacher. We have subsequently become colleagues, friends. Um, I met Eric Foner at Princeton. He was a visiting professor at Princeton, become lifelong friends with him. When I was at uh, Yale Law School, again, there were teachers there, I think, immediately of Owen Fiss, uh, probably most importantly, then Burke Marshall, Paul Gewertz, who had a son who went to school here at Harvard College, and in fact was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, At every place I've gone as a student, there have been a, a couple of teachers who have really been very helpful to me, inspirational teachers. And so, you know, I I feel like I've been really lucky. I came here to Harvard Law School, uh, which is where my brother went to law school. And I, again, feel just, I've I've had a charmed life. I have wonderful colleagues. And um, so luck has been a big part of that. Just pure, you know, pure luck. You know, uh, and another thing that you talk about frequently is the role of affirmative action Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, higher education, jobs, whatever have you. And so for you as a black man Mm -hmm. uh, in today's society, you know, you came in to Princeton and many of these elite universities as they began admitting more, trying to admit more and more black students. Yes. And so can you tell me a little bit about how you see your role as kind of being a uh, anti-affirmative action in some ways while also being at a certain time in history where affirmative action really kind of took into swing? I am pro-affirmative action. I am pro-sensible affirmative action. (laughs) You know, any program can be implemented in a stupid way. So, you know, I'm against stupid affirmative action. Um, but I think stupid affirmative action, frankly, is rather marginal. I, you know, can you can you have a stupid affirmative action program? Yeah, and some institutions probably do. But by and large, for instance, here, I mean, Harvard has had affirmative action, and I think it's been very intelligently implemented, very intelligently designed, and I think it has been good, not only for this university, but for the country and indeed for the world. I am an affirmative action baby. I have been helped by affirmative action. There is no question about it. And uh, I defend it. I think that that has been a good thing. Does it have some cost to it? Yeah, it has some cost to it, sure. I have no doubt that on the very first day that I teach contracts at Harvard Law School, when I get up there on that very first day, I have no doubt that there are some students, by the way, of of, of all races or, you know, political persuasions or whatever, I'm sure that there are some students who are wondering, hmm, do I have a real Harvard Law School professor in front of me? Or do I have an affirmative action Harvard Law School professor in front of me? And I think that with the affirmative action Harvard Law School professor, they probably, you know, they're, 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 they're filled with a little bit, you know, a little bit of anxiety. Is this guy going to be as good as my other professors? I have no doubt that that's, you know, in the, in the air. Um, and, you know, that's a cost. But I think that that cost is uh, overcome by the good that has been done, 
at this institution and others by making special efforts to bring people into these institutions. Um, I was not even on the teaching market. I was all set. When I left Yale Law School, I was all set to clerk for two wonderful judges, Jay Skelly Wright at the United States Court of Appeals, then later Thurgood Marshall. I was ready to clerk, and I was ready to go work for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. When I was a third-year law student, I got a call one day from the then dean of Harvard Law School, James Vorenberg. He calls me up. He says, listen, we've heard a bit about you. We've read some things that you've written. We're sort of interested in you. Have you ever thought about teaching law? I said, no. No, I haven't haven't thought about it, but, you know, I'm game to think about it. He said, good. Come on up. We'd like to talk with you. It was the people here at Harvard Law School who got me interested in uh, legal academia. Well, that was unusual. They were making a special effort to draw in, uh, you know, a young black uh, law student who they thought might be, you know, a good person for legal academia. That was an instance of affirmative action at work. And I have been a beneficiary of that. Um, I think immediately now of two people who, strong proponents of affirmative action, uh, the great William G. Bowen, former president of Princeton University, um, and the great Derek Bach, former president of Harvard University. Uh, Those men, those gentlemen, strong proponents of what I think of as intelligent affirmative action who were in favor of doing the sort of thing that Harvard did, making a special effort to draw in people who might not otherwise, you know, find themselves on like a faculty like, you know, this faculty. And I think that that was a good thing. I've been a beneficiary of it. I defend it. Uh Harvard Law students have been engaged in a number of protests, you know, demonstrations and the like relating to current racial issues in our country, especially the uh, issue of making there be more representation of black people at Harvard Law School and more fairness and equality for black people. So, you know, for you thinking about yourself, I mean, say you went to Harvard Law instead of Yale. Mm -hmm. Would Randall Kennedy of back then be participating in these kinds of protests now? Yes, I would be participating. Um, I've, I've, I, I think that the students now, the activists, they're, they're, they're public spirited. They're reading the paper. They want to change society for the better. I applaud. I applaud. I applaud all of that, and I, I certainly hope that I, as a younger person, I would have been with them. I think I would have been. Uh, when I was a law student, I was interested in ra- matters of social justice, racial justice, I guess, in particular. Uh, I participated in demonstrations. I wrote articles about various controversial issues of the time. And so, yes, I would, I would be a participant. Now, I think I would have a somewhat different point of view with respect to certain things. So, um, again, I've, I've always believed in what I call now, you know, what people call now the politics of respectability. I've always believed that uh, black people in the United States uh, 
in order to effectively push a, um, a program of racial equality, we're going to are going to need allies. I mean, racial minority, you need allies. And frankly, even if you're not a racial minority in the United States, as, as, as big a country as this is, as many, you know, we got all sorts of groups, you need allies to push effectively a program of change. Therefore, back then and now, very attentive to matters of presentation, very attentive to drawing people in, persuading people to come on my, you know, on our side. If, you know, if if there's an audience, an an audience of onlookers, I say be attentive to that audience of onlookers. Uh, People who initially are against you, don't curse them out. Don't, you know, sort of uh, alienate them. Talk to them. He say, "Hey, listen. You know, you're 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 an intelligent person. You're looking at what's going on. You should be on my side. Let me try to persuade you to come to my camp." And so, one you know one you know point of I guess contention I have sometimes with some activist students is I don't think that they are as attentive as they should be to. The arts of persuasion. I don't think they're as attentive as they should be to avoiding things that needlessly alienate people. I mean, what what good is that? Uh, as opposed to persuading people to come on to your side. Um, so, I think I would have been with them. Uh, I think you know, but I, I think I think we would have had some nice debates. Yeah, you know, talking about the idea of persuading rather than self-isolating. You know, an issue right now on many college campuses, and especially here, is the idea of safe spaces. You know, University of Chicago just came out in August basically saying, we are anti-safe space because we believe in the free flow of intellectual ideas, and we do not want to hide our students from anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for you, as a major advocate of free expression. You know, how do you see the role of safe spaces at Harvard Law School, uh, at Harvard University, and at, in academia right now, today? Yeah. I'm a big admirer of the University of Chicago statement. I'm a big admirer of the ethos that has been uh, articulated at the University of Chicago. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of the, you know, safe spaces, trigger warnings, the feeling that, uh, you know, students are, you know, under siege, um, need to be protected, uh, the, the language of trauma, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I recognize that there is racism, sexism, homophobia, various, you know, bad ideas, bad sentiments. They're out there. That's true. The question is, okay, we want to change the world. How do we equip ourselves to change the world? 
One way it seems that we, we one way in which we equip ourselves to change the world is first of all to know about the world. Well, knowing about the world means talking with people who have opinions that are way different than your opinions. I mean, you got to know what makes the other side tick, including your ideological adversaries. So one of the you know one of the reasons why it seems to me you would want to come to a place like Harvard University, is precisely to be around a wide range of people, including people who have ideas that are totally different than yours. So I think that you, 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 you arm yourself by educating yourself, including getting to know very intimately the sentiments and ideas of your ideological adversaries. Furthermore, you arm yourself by developing certain habits, a habit of persuasion, as opposed to short-circuiting things by going to, you know, big, you know, big daddy dean this or dean that. Oh, I didn't like the way or, you know, so-and-so has hurt my feelings. Forget that. Students have a lot more power than they think they have. I think that students should be much more into doing their thing, forgetting the administration. Every time students ask an administration to discipline other students, what are they doing? They are, they are uh, uh, empowering the administration, for goodness sakes. Students should, have, students should use their own power, their own powers of persuasion, sometimes their own powers of ostracism. If a, if if students say if a student says something that you think is reprehensible, instead of going to the administration and saying, you know, discipline this person, students have their own way of disciplining people. I would say, listen, write an open letter. So and so did this. We think it's bad, and we're and further and we're going to give so and so a chance to correct us. Maybe we're mistaken. Maybe we have misperceived what so-and-so was up to. So we're going to give that so-and-so a chance to correct our impression. This is our impression. Maybe we're wrong. Um, Correct us. If we are correct in our perception, we're going to give you a chance to apologize. And we'll, we'll give you 24 hours. If we haven't heard from you in 24 hours, we're going we're gonna to go to different means. What, what other means are there? Write an open letter. Appeal to you know, fellow classmates. What do you think about what so-and-so has said or done? If you think that what so-and-so has said or done is reprehensible, let them know it. The, the, the power of public opinion within the student body is a very powerful force. And it seems to me that students ought to use that force as opposed to going to this disciplinary committee or this dean or whatever. I would say forget that. Students use your power. Hmm. And that itself, the use of that power, the use of persuasion in that way, that is a habit. And it seems to me that that's a habit that we ought to, you know, inculcate. It's hard. It's hard learning how to persuade. And we let's 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 work on that. That's a skill. That's a skill set. And it's a skill set that it seems to me, uh, you know, we we ought to pay more attention to. 
You know, and at kind of our closing question, you know, you've started out at Princeton, you made your way out of the bubble, and then you went to New Haven and then realized the bubble's kind of okay. So you kind of found the just right part at Harvard, you know, and, you know, you've been here for m- almost all of your career. Yeah. Uh, and so what has it been like for you to be able to use the Harvard platform to spread your message? I'll tell you. First of all, um, I've been here, I think now, 32 years And I say this straightforwardly without any problem whatsoever. Um, Harvard University has been a wonderful place to work. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed my time here. I feel very privileged to be here. Uh, Is Harvard University perfect? No, of course not. It's, you know, it's an institution created by people. So it's, 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 it's by no means perfect. But as a faculty member here, this has been just absolutely wonderful. Every year I get to work with smart, ambitious, on-the-ball young people. I'm around colleagues who are smart and on-the-ball and ambitious the uh, facilities. I, I say this from time to time. I say it halfway facetiously. I kind of, I, I, I wish, I, I kind of wish that I could say, well, I would have written more articles. I would have written more books. I would have written better books if only, you know, if only I didn't have to teach so much. If only I could have, you know, had more opportunity to consult this or that resource. I can't say that. (laughs) Harvard University puts nothing in my way, nothing in my way. It facilitates me doing what I do to the best of my ability. So, frankly, Whatever deficiencies there are, I can't lay off on Harvard University. It's been wonderful. Randy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to It Happened at Harvard from the Harvard Crimson. Thanks to Mariel Klein, Zach Royal, Tim Devine, Tom Frank, and, of course, Randall Kennedy. This podcast was brought to you with the help of Harvard College Radio. WHRB 95.3 FM Cambridge, the home of all things Harvard Radio Broadcasting. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and we hope you join us again next time. I'm Will Skinner. And I'm Sam Danello. Have a good one, folks.